I'll ask you, church, to turn to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12 is where we begin this morning as we continue in our look at the gospel of Luke, this being our second Sunday in a row in Luke's gospel. As last week, we began looking at this continued theme that we see throughout Luke, that being of the kingdom of God. We see this as a repeated phrase time and again. And we saw that this kingdom that Christ came to inaugurate or is begin his kingdom, usher in his kingdom at his coming, uh, is different because Christ has the ultimate power to reverse the curse of sin. And that's why we see his different healings and driving out demons, is uh, demonstrating his power over the curse of sin to reverse that and as his kingdom is established through the preaching of his gospel. Now we move our attention this week on further into the gospel of Luke to Luke chapter 12 and I want us to continue this theme because it is a major theme throughout the entire book of Luke, that being the kingdom of God and what that looks like and, and how we are to live in light of this kingdom as kingdom citizens. And so uh, as such, I want us to, to pause and take note. There's, a, there's an ever-growing epidemic in our Western culture of anxiety and depression and many more struggles which often fall under the umbrella term of mental health. I'm sure you've heard that term repeatedly uh, throughout our society in these days, especially in particular over the last several years. And I, and I don't want at all to in any way detract from the reality of those struggles, that there are true struggles. Please hear me. There are legitimate mental health issues in which people suffer from as a result of the fall. And there are many resources available to help our brothers and sisters who struggle with such and point them to the counsel of God's word. And so if, if you are counted among those brothers and sisters who struggle with such, I would encourage you to seek out such help that would point you to the counsel of God's word for those issues. However, as with many things in our day, there also comes a groupthink mentality in which because something is discussed ad nauseum, highlighted ad nauseum, and identified as the root cause of so many issues, many will simply self-diagnose themselves because of what they've heard or seen or experience in the life of their friends. So for so many people, the issue of anxiety and depression is not a mental health issue, but a heart issue. Now again, let me say, there are definitely, absolutely, those who struggle with legitimate issues. And so if that is you, I'm not saying your issues aren't legitimate. But there are many who struggle with this that for them it is a heart issue. It's an issue of authority. The simple truth is this. We all must place authority within our lives somewhere. All of us, whether we realize it or not, have an authoritative figure or group, person, place, thing. That's a noun, right? All of us have a place of authority in our lives, whether we acknowledge it or not. And the reason often some of us don't realize it is because that authority has totally been placed on ourselves. 
For those of us who trust in Christ, it's clear we've placed authority with God and His self-revelatory Word. For those who have not done so, the authority could be placed, as I said, in the self. The authority could be placed in science. The authority could be placed in governmental powers. All of this, the list could obviously go on. For those of us who have beheld the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and believed in his gospel, we must be aligned with him and his kingdom. Which means that the sole authority in our lives must be Christ. And so whether you realize it or not, you are either placing your authority, the authority of your life, with Christ or you are wholesale rejecting Christ and placing that authority somewhere else. But for the kingdom of God, there is one option. The authority must be acknowledged to be with Christ. So, as we look this morning, we're going to be challenged with where our treasure is. And we'll be challenged with the pointed words that I'm sure you're familiar with. That where the treasure is, there the heart. Where the, your treasure is, there your heart is also. Right? The challenge for us this morning is going to be where is the authority being placed in our lives? And then how are we living in accordance with that? And not only that, for us to see that our authority must be with Christ. And then how are we to live in light of that authority being squarely placed with Christ. So I'll ask you to stand in honor of the reading of God's word once again as we read our initial text for this morning coming from Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. This is the word of God. Let's pray, church. God, as we come before you, I come humbly to ask that you would help me to communicate the truths of your word with clarity and conviction, that you would guard me from error, that your, your word would be preached, that your church might be edified, and the lost might be brought to realization of the truth of your gospel, uh, belief in you, which you give them, and uh, God, that your name would ultimately be glorified in all things. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated, church. So again, last week, we took note of one of the central themes of Jesus' message here in Luke's gospel, and in particular, that being the kingdom of God. So just to, to recap that again, what we need to see and understand in light of Jesus' teaching on the kingdom of God 
is exactly what our role and responsibility is in the kingdom. So Jesus' incarnation and earthly ministry, as we saw last week, were the inauguration of his kingdom. His second coming will be the consummation of his kingdom. So we have inauguration, consummation. So what happens in between there is outlined for our responsibility of preaching the gospel. So in the meantime, we are to be about establishing his kingdom, his kingdom come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's much more than just a repetitious part of the Lord's prayer that we just skip over, that we truly are to pray that his kingdom would come and his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. I don't know how many times many of us could say we've just simply skipped over that without actually thinking the implications of those words. I don't know how I skipped over this fact last week, but I'm glad I had the chance to share it with you now. So the phrase kingdom, or more specifically, kingdom of God, appears 33 plus times here in the Gospel of Luke. So if you remember, uh, just a, a basic principle of biblical study is if something is repeated, then we probably need to pay attention to it. And so again, 33 plus times throughout the Gospel of Luke, we see repeated this term of kingdom or kingdom of God in specific. So pretty clear indication of a repeated theme and focus. So as we turn our attention here, it's within the context of continuing this teaching on the kingdom of God that Jesus pauses with this large crowd and begins to tell this parable because as he's been teaching this crowd about what it looks like, those who acknowledge him before men will also be acknowledged before the angels of God, he says earlier in verse 8. So he's teaching all of these incredibly important things on his kingdom and kingdom life. And we see there in verse 13, the first part of our text for this morning, someone in the crowd yells out. And they don't yell out a question that pertains to what he's been teaching. What do they yell out? Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. So, you know, sometimes I feel this way in the college class that I teach, right? Like a question will be asked on something that I've just covered and I'll be like, and the rest of the class will kind of like be looking and I'll just try my best to graciously re-explain everything else that I've just said, right? And so I can imagine a similar idea here with Jesus, right? He's, he's been teaching all of these things. And again, this person yells out from the crowd, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, and this is Jesus' initial response is, man, who made me judge or arbiter over you? And he goes on to say, and he begins this parable. Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. This is the, the, the pretext to the parable that he's getting ready to tell. But did you notice, again, what happened here? He's just given a hope-filled encouragement of the Holy Spirit's guidance and all that will take place as he departs and the work of the kingdom is left to his disciples. And in this, they will be taken before all sorts of authorities, but they have no need to fear because the Holy Spirit will teach them what they ought to say. That's verses 8 through 12 right there. That's what he's describing. And interestingly enough, it is not a new and a fresh word that we go on to see the apostles preach. 
right? And that's the, the pretext going into our text for today is that he tells them that they're going to be taken before authorities, before principalities, and that they don't need to be fearful of what to say because the Holy Spirit will guide them in what to say. But notice it's, it's not a new or fresh word that they, we go on to see the apostles preach, but rather they point to what the Spirit has already testified to in the law and the prophets. Nonetheless, then, what happens is this young man cries out about something completely different, and he appeals to Jesus to have his brother split the inheritance with him. Jesus uses this moment not to get involved with worldly affairs, but to continue to direct the crowd's attention to the direct correlation between our heart and life in the kingdom. Jesus' instruction is to be on guard. That is to be steadfast in our protection. Well, we have to ask ourselves, protection of what? Now, I've already pointed us to this theme of kingdom of God and how many times that phrase appears in Luke. But let me share with you a second theme, another theme that is often coupled with that throughout the gospel loop. So appearing around more than 20 times is the word and the idea of the human heart. Not the organ, but the idea of that being the center of being, the center of self being the heart. We see earlier in the Gospel of Luke, in Luke chapter 6 and verse 45, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the, his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So what Jesus addresses and warns not just this man, but the crowd as well, is the reality of where we find true purpose, peace, and joy. And what all human beings need to come to the realization of is that worldly abundance can never provide the peace and joy it promises. Worldly abundance can never provide the peace and the joy it promises. It is so easy to look at our culture in a vacuum chamber. Because we can easily say that our culture has this same mindset of just focused on worldly riches, acclamation of all those things, accumulation of all those things rather. But notice here, this is happening in Jesus' day. So the reality of the human heart is that the human heart has struggled with this issue of desiring abundance since the fall. We fill ourselves with time spent with the sole goal of acquiring abundance that we think will bring us peace and joy, but it never does. I mean, just think of how many hours in our day are dedicated to that. Now, of course, what determines that is, is that your mindset or are you focused on Christ and his kingdom through whatever your job is? whatever it is that you're doing. But so many of us are so distracted by trying to accumulate worldly riches that will never provide us the peace and joy that it promises. Paul addresses this issue with Timothy. As he's exhorting Timothy to lead the church well, he tells him in 1 Timothy chapter 6, he tells him starting in verse 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. 
I mean, that, that's a beautiful summation statement in and of itself. But he goes on to expound on that. Godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. So this is just the basic necessities, right? But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. And Paul continues to say to Timothy, that famous verse that is often misquoted, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, Flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Godliness with contentment is great gain. This is the call for those of us who live in light of the kingdom of Christ. To be content with what he has provided, not to be so distracted by worldly gain that we lose sight of who it is that has given us all that we have. The author of Hebrews goes on to say in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So that's interesting. The author of Hebrews roots this idea of being content with the idea of, that we see in the Great Commission, that Christ is always with us. This promise. And what was Christ discussing with the disciples in this crowd before having to address the misgivings of this young man? He was talking about being content and knowing that the Holy Spirit would be with them to provide them whatever words necessary to give a defense for their faith when they go before these rulers and officials who will oppose them because they live in light of his kingdom and not the kingdom of the world. Jesus continues to address this young man and this crowd because he wants the crowd to understand this as well as we continue, pick back up in verse 16. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully and he had thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So the idea here is this young man has this plentiful, bountiful harvest, and he doesn't have enough storage space for it. And so rather than distributing that, he worries about how can I maintain all of this stuff? How can I keep all of this stuff? And his determining factor is, well, I'll build another barn so I can store even more stuff and I can keep all the stuff to myself. Of course, the point of the parable is clear. He's a fool. God comes to him and, and he says, that you can't take those things with you. Your soul is required of you this evening. And so notice also, it's interesting, the, the word, use, word it's used here by this parable in verse 19. 
of this man talking to his own soul. You have ample goods laid up for you many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. The same phrase, phrasage used by Paul in his explanation of what hope we have if there is no resurrection. Let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. But because we do live in light of the reality of the resurrection, then our treasure is not to eat, drink, be merry, fill ourselves with all the fullness of this world and pleasures of this world, but rather it's to live in light of the resurrection, in light of the kingdom of God. And you see, the, the other idea here is that this man, as you'll go on to see, did not share out of his abundance, but rather his desire was to keep this abundance to himself. So the fruitful Christian life is one of sacrifice. So a continued theme throughout Jesus' teaching is the necessity of sacrifice. We continue, again, if you look back in specifically those two, last two verses, verse 20 and 21, as his soul is required of him, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Our hearts are to be storehouses of godly abundance, is the idea here. But what does that look like? Well, it doesn't look like tirelessly toiling after earthly treasure because tirelessly toiling after earthly treasure will leave us bankrupt to the riches of the kingdom. Let us not be a church that clings tightly to our purse strings and then finds ourselves bankrupt to the kingdom. We have to be willing to consistently analyze our life choices and ask the question, whose kingdom am I looking to build? Because if that previous, if, if this truth is true, our hearts are to be storehouses of godly abundance, that previous truth stands true. That the Christian life is one of sacrifice. Am I toiling to build my kingdom by seeking to hoard up earthly treasure? Or am I throwing myself at the grace and provision of the Father and saying, Lord, it's yours, do with it what you will? That's at the heart of this parable that Jesus reads to this crowd. Another way of putting this point is to say that our lives are to be storehouses of righteousness. Now, the progressive would shudder at this statement, right? I see it all the time, more progressive thinking Christians making statements that liken the pursuit of righteousness to the practice of the Pharisees. Well, what do we read here in the Gospels that the kingdom of God is all about righteousness. Not a righteousness which comes from the self, but rather one that is imparted to us through a regenerate heart. We just sang a psalm that was built off of this verse, Matthew 6, 33. I said a psalm. We sang a song, Right? But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Now, this sounds good to us in theory. Like we hear that verse and we're like, amen. Seek his righteousness, all these things will be added to you. Seek the kingdom of God. I'm all about that, right? It sounds good in theory, but in practice, this creates all sorts of issues. 
Oh, sure, the idea of setting ourselves up as this self-righteous hero who seeks only the kingdom of God, does not pursue the treasures of this world, only seeks to build up the kingdom, that sounds good. But when it comes time to do it, when it comes time to put that into practice, what does that look like? When we say that we will sacrifice the riches of this world for the kingdom, the bills don't stop. Inflation doesn't slow down because we're doing kingdom work. You can't pay the mortgage with righteousness, right? Some of you are getting anxious right now just thinking about that. But that exactly is what Jesus addresses, is that anxiety of living in a world and not seeking the abundance of the world, which means there will be anxiety that comes, but how do we treat that? How do we address that? Well, we continue reading. Verse 22. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than birds? And which of you, being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? If then you are not able to do a small thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. So the distinct character attribute which Jesus is combating here is that which I've just mentioned, that of anxiousness. And the application here is clear and striking. Anxiousness is a direct affront to the kingdom of God. Anxiousness is a direct affront to the kingdom of God. Anxiousness assumes the treasures of this world as things to be hoarded and pursued above all else. In fact, Jesus says that. He's like, God so close the grass of the field. Do not seek what to eat or drink. All the nations of the world seek after these things. And your Father knows that you need them. Anxiousness at its root says that, I, that we don't trust that God can and will provide for his kingdom purposes. That we don't trust that God can and will provide for those whom he knows are his. Anxiousness says at, at its root that we need to be the ones in control. Anxiousness says, I don't, I don't like not knowing what the Lord is doing here. I don't like not knowing how this is going to happen or how this is going to get paid, how this is going to be addressed, what I'm going to do here. I mean, look again there at verse 28. If God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? Do you see the correlation that Jesus draws there? Our anxiousness is in direct proportion to our faith. Now, 
I know that you might be saying you're held in your head, golly, that's a gut punch. Because it was to me as I was wrestling with the text earlier this week, so I had to make sure I punched you in the stomach with it as well. So, but this is what makes Jesus' statement in this so much sweeter. Is just a chapter later, he says this in chapter 13, starting in verse 18. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like the grain of a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in its garden and it grew and became a tree. And the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again, he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. So the idea here is something small becoming something big. Right? He continues this idea, brings back up that very same analogy of a mustard seed in chapter 17, verse 6. And the Lord said, if you had faith like the grain of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. So why does that make Jesus' statement here in chapter 12 so sweet? The proportion of our faith does not have to be great for you to be an active participant in the kingdom of God. And what makes it even more sweet is when you consider where our faith comes from. We see this in Ephesians 2 verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. So friend, even if your faith is small, know that it is enough to be fruitful for the kingdom. Even if your faith is small, know that it is the exact measure of faith which the Father has deemed necessary for you. Because we continue reading in verse 32, Jesus tells them in light of even just saying, oh, you of little faith, he tells them in verse 32 here in chapter 12, fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. In case you didn't catch it, he's not talking about money bags that will grow old, right? So he's money bags that won't grow old, that is not literal money bags, but money and a treasure that is built up where? In heaven. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This treasure is meant to be built up where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. To treasure Christ is to abandon the treasures of this world, is the idea here. To treasure Christ is to abandon the treasures of this world. We cannot hold Christ dear while still holding dearly to the things of this world. It's just not possible. And if we're doing so, then we are combating what is happening in us. We are constantly trying to put back on the flesh rather than living in the newness of life that Josh just displayed for us just a while ago. Jesus will return to consummate his kingdom, revealing the storehouses of man. And the question will be, where is your treasure? The believer who does not give to others 
is a believer who does not believe God gives to him or her. The believer who won't give to others believes that God is not the one that that is giving him or her all that they have. Show me a believer who clings tightly to the treasures of this world and I'll show you a believer whose heart is lacking faith and far from the kingdom of God. Jesus goes on to say this, if you'll turn to Luke chapter 19. Looking in verse 11, he tells another parable about treasure. And this parable continues to describe what the kingdom of God looks like, and more in particular, what our role in the kingdom of God is as far as continuing to establish his kingdom come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So, Luke chapter 19, verse 11. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So they're still having a misunderstanding of what the kingdom of God looks like. They're expecting an earthly kingdom. They're expecting Jesus to ride into Jerusalem, not in the triumphal entry here in just a little bit on a humble donkey, but they want him to ride into Jerusalem on a horse to overthrow the Romans. And so he tells them a parable. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. So this parable goes on to describe this nobleman that goes and he entrusts in this kingdom his, this, his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. In verse 15, when he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him. So he, he gave these servants the money. And their job was to take care of his money while they were gone. So he, he returns and he asks them what they've done with his money. The first came before him, verse 16, saying, Lord, your, your mina has been made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. He goes on. The second servant comes to him, saying, Lord, your mina has made five. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Verse 20, then another came to him saying, Lord, here's your meter, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. So he said to those who stood by, if you go to verse 25, he said to them, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. So this is the treasure of the kingdom. That he has imparted to us the treasure of the gospel. That has been invested to us. So what we do with that gospel until the king returns to see what, has been, what we have done with what has been entrusted to us, we are responsible for that. And those who also trust in a different treasure who say that they hate this king, they will be made responsible for that 
as well. Our willingness to surrender the treasures of this world is in direct proportion to how much we treasure Christ. The term benevolent Christian should be a repetitive phrase. The two should be synonymous with one another. But we live here in a time and day in which we would rather cling dearly to the things of this world than treasure dearly Christ. So the challenge for us, church, is to do deep self-analysis to where our treasure lies, for there your heart lies also. And this is what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God, is what are you doing with the king's treasure? Let's pray, church. God, we love you. As we come before you and we consider these words, I pray, God, that you would bring a deep feeling of righteous conviction on us as your church. May we truly analyze how we have handled your treasure of the gospel. Have we truly been focused on building your kingdom or are we so preoccupied with hoarding our own treasures that we just completely forget what it means to be responsible for the gospel of salvation which you have entrusted to us. God, I pray for anyone here who might be a part of that group who resents the king and your kingdom, whose heart is far from you. I pray that you would draw them to yourself through the truth of the gospel and realizing the testimony borne witness to us by Josh through the baptistry just a little while ago that you truly can and will bring from death to life those who trust in you. So I pray that you would bestow the gift of faith on them. God, help us as we've been entrusted with your gospel to not sow sparingly, but to sow abundantly, not the treasures of this world, but to build up your treasure and your kingdom. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.